I want to invite you now, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. So we will, hopefully as our custom, open the Bible together and dig into it together. So if you don't have a smartphone, if you don't have a device or something that you would get, get you access to uh, the Bible or, or something that will get you access to electronic version of the Bible, we want to put a Bible in your hand. So if you would just slip your hand up and hold it there, we would love to put a Bible in your hand. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, we want to put this in your hand to follow along with us so that this isn't just something where some person stands up here and pontificates about his opinions, but hopefully as a, as a corporate, a group exercise, we walk through the Bible together. And as we see something amazing that happens, when we open up the Bible, something really miraculous happens. The Bible tends to start to open us. And we don't simply just expose what's in the Bible, but something amazing happens through the power of the Spirit. It actually exposes what's in us. And so we want to be in Romans chapter 6. As you're making your way there to Romans chapter 6, we want to spend our time, the majority of our time and attention, focusing on this good news found around Romans chapter 6 and then explain some things, hopefully, that for some of you who are just watching this weird thing that just happened, they just dipped these people, they had like a public bath. Um, That's crazy. We want to talk about why we do that and what what we mean when we say baptism. So I want to invite you to Romans chapter 6. Maybe lay down the groundwork for you. Romans is like like the theological manifesto that Paul has written for the New Testament church. And so most of what we believe about who Jesus is, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, most of what we understand about the word gospel, that is good news that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John told us about the person and work of Jesus, is unfolded and explained and illustrated for us throughout the entirety of the book of Romans. So in the next couple of years, hopefully, as is our custom, we dig through, most of the time, a single book of the Bible at a time. Um, but we want to dig into the book of Romans in the next couple of years and hopefully not spend, I, I, I feel, as you'll see, I could probably preach a series on the book of Romans that would last like 20 years. And I would still miss very important key bits of information. And so we're going to dig into what the Bible begins to tell us about the good news of Jesus as illustrated for us in baptism, and we'll introduce so in Romans chapter 6, digging into kind of in the middle of this theological manifesto, this, this, ex, this expounding upon the, the person and work in, of Jesus Christ as it applies to the church. So I'm going to read you beginning verse 1 of Romans chapter 6. Paul saying to the church in response to a conversation about sin and Christ's forgiveness, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we, also, we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death he died, he died to sin once 
for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. I want to, as best I can, in the time that we've got, unpack this good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. Hopefully illustrate for you why that plays out in the way of the church and interpreting a particular way of reading the Bible that that. It looks like baptism as you just saw it, a person being dunked in the water and coming out, not drowning, but alive. But I also want to show to you maybe a way in which the Scripture kind of unfolds for us a picture of baptism that might inform and illustrate for us the good thing that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And in that, I want you to see the Gospel. I want you to see the good news of Jesus. More than anything else, I want you to hear and see this good news. That God is not against you and out to destroy you, but God is for you in Jesus Christ. That God does not want to see you waste away to nothing and disappear into oblivion, but God wants to give you a new life, a new hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, is incredibly good news. So you see here this analogy between the thing that Jesus Christ did in His life, in His work, in His practice, in His teaching, and the practice of the first Christians of baptism. So there's an analogy between the person and work of Jesus who lived a perfect and sinless life, who we believe walked this earth having never rebelled against Jesus Christ like we often do, but a person who walked freely and perfectly among us and demonstrated the love of God for us so that none of us would ever again wonder, what is God like? We can simply look at Jesus. When we ask, what, what would God say in this, in this particular perspective or, or from this perspective in this particular environment? And we look at Jesus and we have that answer. And we'll never have to wonder again, is, is, is God out there to destroy us? Is God out there to kill us and, and do away with us? And instead we see the answer in Jesus Christ. Absolutely not. There is a new kingdom that is coming, and this kingdom is coming, and it is good news. And throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from the Gospel t- telling us about John the Baptist all the way to Jesus, he says, look, a kingdom is coming, and there's good news about this kingdom. This kingdom that's coming is not like any other kingdom you've ever seen. This kingdom's different. You see, the king of this kingdom, he doesn't send his subjects out to die for his political motives. This king doesn't send others to die in his place. He doesn't get into wars and get into scuffles and in conflict with bad people all around the world and send his subjects out to die for him. No, no. This king's weird. This king, instead of sending his subjects to die for his kingdom and for his kingship, he jumps in front of the army and dies so that none of his subjects will ever experience death. This is a different king. This is a different kingdom. This kingdom is upside down, and that is incredibly good news. The victory that this kingdom brings is not something that's bought by your 
work or your performance or your fighting or your struggle, this kingdom is brought, and that's good news, by a king who has fought the battle for us, who has won victoriously, completely, finally, sufficiently in our place. That's this kingdom. This kingdom isn't trying to raise money for a political campaign. This kingdom isn't trying to to sucker you into buying into something that will one day maybe not pan out. This kingdom is upside down. This this kingdom is is really different. You You don't buy your way into this kingdom. The price for your admission into this kingdom was paid completely in full by Jesus. The entrance into this country club was paid completely by Jesus Christ. And the picture of this, the picture of how Jesus has done this for us is illustrated for us in Romans chapter 6. And we are united with this king in this new kingdom. And by simply seeing who God is in Jesus Christ, by simply receiving it, believing it, I want to tell you just to open your mind to the possibility that this might be true is the ability to have a new life. So as I sit here and tell you about who Jesus is and what he's done, some of you in this room, maybe somebody just drug you in here against your will, and this guy standing up here talking about Jesus is going to annoy you for the next 35, 45 minutes, okay? I apologize, but I just want to just speak to you directly for a minute there. If if you've got doubts about this Jesus, I want to encourage you. If you would just even begin to consider the possibility that Jesus has done this for you, just to simply open your mind to the possibility is the work of the Holy Spirit to give you a brand new life. So look what this text tells us. This tells us that there's a relationship that exists based on this good news that creates in us a new relationship to sin. Sin being the thing that not only that we rebel against God and we do the things that God does not want us to do, but the sinfulness that we walk around with. So it's not that just you lie, it's that you're a liar. And even if you stopped lying, it wouldn't change the fact that you're a liar. And those lies that you told make you a liar. So something else has to come here, and there's a new kind of thing that has to to take place. And so I want you to see, more than anything, that we want to hear the gospel, we want to hear this good news, and then apply the gospel to what we think about all these other things. So this is hopefully good news for you. If you want to roll back to me to chapter 5, verse 1, you can, otherwise I'll just read it to you. The basis for this picture of the gospel and baptism comes from Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, therefore, after chapter 4, he's explain to us that we are justified before God by what Jesus has done. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Friend, hear the good news more than anything else. Hear this good news and see how this plays out. You have been justified by faith. Justified, that's a biblical word. We don't use it often. But to be justified means to somehow uh, be made right. It means to be made innocent in the eyes of the law. So how do you do that? Well, in in the eyes of the law, in our current day and age, if, if you do something wrong, if you break a law, well, then you have to pay the price. If you've been convicted, if you are guilty, well, then there's a price that must be paid. And you're not justified until you've paid that debt to society. You're not justified. You're guilty in the eyes of the law, and you will be that unless you have paid the debt. 
But here's this really cool thing that happens. We have been justified not by the debt that we have paid or that we ought to pay or the debt that we owe to God for not being as perfect as he's demanded us to be because he's holy and blameless, but we have been justified because of a gift that he has given us. And it actually puts us at peace with God. And Jesus Christ, by faith, gives us access to this gift, and we call it grace. An unmerited favor, an undeserved gift. A gift that has eternal value that you do not deserve. This is what God's done for us. So here, I think this is what we see. Before we kind of jump back into Acts chapter, or, uh, into Romans chapter 6, here, here's what we see, right? You've been justified by faith. This, this is the access to God's peace that He gives us through Jesus Christ. So if you were to wonder, I mean, how, okay, how, how can I possibly make up for the things that I've done? How can I make things right before God. Well, in a court of law, again, you're only justified by the crimes you've committed by paying the penalty. But Jesus has paid the crime, the penalty for the crime that you and I have committed. What's that got to do with me? How do I get access to the gift of innocence that Jesus apparently has and wants to give us? It tells us right there. We, him, excuse me, through him in verse 2, have obtained access by what? Say it out loud for me. Faith. By faith, we have access into this grace. All you have to do is see it and believe it, and you get access to it. So right now, I've got access to air that's about 18 inches above yours, right? Because I'm standing on a stage, and here I am, and I don't know, maybe this will blow some of your minds. I'm not levitating. I'm not hovering. I don't have that ability. I'm standing on something, and I have access to air that's about 18 inches higher than yours, right? Because I'm standing on it. I didn't just magically appear. I didn't just magically levitate to 18 inches. But instead, I saw something. I saw and I looked at something. I said, you know what? If I bet, I bet if I were to, to, to jump up on I would step into that. I bet that it will hold my weight. I bet that if I step on there, I will be 18 inches above everyone else. I'll have access to something at least 18 inches above the rest of you. Some of you are taller than me, but maybe for the rest of you, at least 18 inches above you. That's what I'll have access to. And I'll have that because I, I think that this thing will hold me. And I stand on it. I don't stand here by my own power. I'm not hovering 18 inches above you on my own power. I'm standing on something. And I simply recognize, I think the aluminum, the wood, all of that going together, I think, you know, roughly the guys that put it together are mostly trustworthy. I saw them, I helped them do it. And so I'm going to step into that. That seems silly. But if you will multiply that analogy infinitely, by the majesty and goodness of God, you'll begin to see a picture of what he's done for us. As far as, the, as far as the heavens are high above the earth, so God's ways are separated from our ways, how could we have access to that which is above and beyond all that we could ask or imagine? And he says, if you want access to that, if you want access to the good gift of God's grace, of his free love that he gives to you in Jesus Christ, if you will just recognize that he has made a way, if you will just begin to open your eyes to the possibility that you step out in faith toward Jesus, he will hold you. And friend, 18 inches is a joke compared to the infinite and matchless heights that Jesus Christ will raise you. So much so that we will forever and ever wonder how high and how deep and how wide the majesty and the love of Jesus Christ, uh, love of God in Jesus Christ is for us. We'll spend the rest of our eternity wondering exactly how far above our sin God has really carried us. Far according to the Old Testament as the East is from the West. That's 
That's what God has invited us to do. And if you will just begin to recognize that that grace, you have accessed by that, just by seeing and recognizing what Jesus Christ has done and begin to believe it, you will have access to it. And you will know joy. You will know a sense of contentment, a sense of fulfillment that he has wanted to give you from the beginning and the moment that he invented you. He wants to give it to you freely in Jesus Christ. So this is our goal. Our goal is to hear this good news and then apply it. We want the gospel to be the center of what we do. So let me just set you free from a couple things, Christian. It is not your job, it is not your responsibility to have a well-thought-out understanding of, let's say, abortion. It is not your responsibility, Christian, to have a well-thought-out explanation, even though we'll try over the next couple of minutes, of baptism. It is not your job, Christian, to have a well-thought-out and, and well and a deep understanding of political issues like gun control, about like violence, of equal rights. That is not your responsibility. It is your responsibility to have a deep and well-thought-out understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And then we apply that good news to every area of our life. So rest easy, friend. You've been called into access with something that is amazing, it is infinite, it is great. And everything else will fall into place. Jesus even said this, the good news of this kingdom, you ought to seek first. If you seek that kingdom first, and if you seek the righteousness that God gives you in Jesus Christ, then all these other things, all these other things you're carrying, all the weight, all the burden, all the frustration, the confusion, Jesus says he'll add those. They'll throw those in. But first and foremost, we seek this good news. Friend, it is not your responsibility to answer all the questions of the world. It is your responsibility to see how good God is and to receive it and begin to, if you would just open your mind to the possibility that it's true, I guarantee you something amazing will happen. So what happens when we are justified before God, if what we have done wrong is now justified, that creates a new relationship to sin, does it not? If we've sinned and our rebellious hearts have have separated us from God, And now that Jesus has justified us, we have a new relationship to sin. And for the rest of chapter 5, he begins to explain that to us. Just like Adam was the first sinner, and you come from a long line of sinners, so also Jesus was the first perfect one. And in the same way that Adam created a family tree that was marked by sin, Jesus has created a family tree that's marked by new life, by forgiveness and by righteousness. And we have access, according to verse 17, to this free gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. That creates in us a new relationship with sin. So I've been forgiven of sin. What do I do now? Our relationship was different. Someone would ask, all right, so, so what is your new relationship with sin? And in Romans chapter 6, as we just read, wants to answer that question. You know what your new relationship to sin is? Buried, drowned, choked out, suffocating, wanting air. That's a new relationship that you have to sin. Jesus justified you, set you free from all sin that you've committed and all the sin that you might even think about committing. And Jesus has taken that sin and he's taken it and it says that he's buried it. And when you want to ask yourself what your relationship is to sin, like what is my relationship to sin, I want you to think of one thing. I want you to think of Jesus Christ dead in a tomb. Dead. Lifeless. It has no life. Jesus has choked it out. Jesus has gone and taken it into the grave. And he's united you with him. Look at, our, look at our identity. In verse 3, it says that we are united with Christ in his death. In verse 4, it says that we are raised to walk with a new life. Verse 5, it says that we are united with Christ also in his resurrection. Verse 6 says that we are crucified with Christ in order that we'd be free from sin. 
Verse 8 tells us now that we are alive with Christ. Verse 9 tells us that we, you, are free from the dominion of death. Imagine that. Verse 10 says that we are alive now for God's purposes. And verse 11 says that we are dead to sin and we are now alive to God. How does a dead body respond to anything? How does a dead animal respond to being run over again? That is your response and mine to sin. That has no power. And so we have this relationship with sin that begins with a question of verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then there's a really cool thing that happens not only here, but in the next verse that we stopped reading at 14, 15. It says, by no means. And it has an exclamation mark. I just want to let you into this. Um, I, I, it's, it's very rare that I get to like say, hey, the Greek is really cool here. There's a phrase here called meganoito. And it's really difficult to translate. In fact, it's, it's akin in probably the first couple of centuries of the church to like a curse word. It would be like heaping a curse upon someone. And so in the similar kind of way that remember when, when Peter denied Jesus, it says, he's like, no, I don't know him. And then he's like, you know, are you sure you don't know him? And the second time he's like, no, I promise you I don't know him. And the third time it says, no, I absolutely don't know him. And then it says he cursed. So he's like, blankety blank, no, I do not know Jesus. That's the same kind of formulation here. This phrase is not just no. So are we to keep sinning? If Jesus has set us free and if Jesus is forgiving us, do we just keep on sinning? And Paul goes, no. Not only no, but blankety blank no. No, absolutely not. Why? Because now Jesus has done something. If you're dead to sin, then how can you continue to live in it? So this is the way I would illustrate this to you. Some of you heard me say this. Like, I love you guys in this room, and because I love you, I know that if I were to, and just think about this, if I were to walk up to you today, and I were to just punch you in the face, I mean, just drill you in the face, right? I think that. I mean, this is, this, I love you guys. And I, I know that you would probably forgive me. You probably would. I mean, I'd apologize. I promise you I'll never do it again. I swear. I'll, I, you know, I, you know, I had to, or I, I didn't mean to. Or I, I mean, I, I, mean I, I bet. I, I know because how gracious you guys are. I know that you would probably find it in your heart to forgive me, right? And I could promise, like, you know, I'll never do it again. I, I promise I won't ever punch you in the face again, right? And you could probably come back and say, you know, I, okay, all right. Now, I forgive you. I mean, we're never going to get within arm lengths, you know, arm, arm's length of you ever again, but like, like, I forgive you. I bet I could. But here's the question. If I really loved you, why would I? If I really loved you, if I cared for you at all, why would I? Is it love for me knowing that you might forgive me? I would punch you anyway? Absolutely not. In fact, it would almost be the opposite, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be testing our relationship? Wouldn't it be pushing us into a place that we have no reason to go. The same thing is true here. He says, look, just because Jesus has forgiven you, forgiven you, do you, forgive you, forgiven you do, does that mean you continue to sin? Do you continue to sin against him? And he says, no, absolutely not. Blankety blank, no, absolutely not. Jesus has done something for you, and you are now united with him, and because you were united with him, you are now dead. Think about this. Sin is like a disowning father. Picture like the most you know, the, the worst mob movie you can think of, and that's what, this, is, this is what sin is like. And he's looking at you, and sin says to you, you're dead to me. You're dead. That is exactly our relationship to sin. Because now that we've trusted in Christ, we have forsaken sin in such a way that sin no longer has a part of us. If Jesus, according to this verse, is the one who put sin to death, 
For sin, it says in verse 14, has no dominion over you because now you're under Jesus' grace. Jesus and, and sin do a battle and Jesus destroys sin and just beats it to death. He not, only sin, he not only didn't sin, he was perfect, but then he puts sin to death and the effects of sin he wears on his own body and walks out victoriously, putting to death, death. And when we align ourselves with Jesus, we're doing something that sin can simply not forgive. And sin looks at us and says, like a, a disowning father, you are no longer mine. You have betrayed sin in such a permanent way. But then look what it says happens after we betray sin. God, just like sin, like a disowning father says, you're dead to me. Did you catch what God, the loving father says? The adopting father, he says, you're a child to me. Did you catch that? If we've died with him and sin is now dead, then now we are united with him. And in a resurrection like his, we, although our sin has been crucified with him, have a new life. So you just saw that. You saw it, literally saw this. And I I didn't sense this in any of you, but none of you looked nervous like you thought I was going to drown someone up here. None of you were like, whoa, no, don't don't drown them. You pretty much assumed, oh, this person is not going to be drowned in front of me. Because think about how beautiful and adorable it is. We're doing this, this amazing thing. This, but what happens with this beautiful thing of baptism if I just hold that person down under the water? Just a little bit. What happens? What do we call that? It's no longer baptism. It all of a sudden becomes murder. But none of you seem to be afraid of that until just now. None of you seem to think that drowning in the water is a possibility. And the same way that we have no fear of drowning in the waters of baptism, so also do we have no fear of remaining six feet under the ground. Let me say this again. In the same way that you know I'm not going to drown this person in the water, so also you know Jesus is not going to abandon you in the grave. And in the same way that Jesus was not afraid to go in the grave because he knew he could walk out victoriously, so also you and I have no fear over death. Just imagine that for a minute. Just let that sit on you just for a moment. Let all the shock of death, let all the weight of death sit on you for just a minute. You and I are all one phone call away from having our life turned upside down, are we not? We are one phone call away from having our life turned upside down. And some of you have gotten that phone call, haven't you? And you've lost someone. And death has taken someone valuable to you, someone meaningful to you. And you've watched the life slip away from them. And just for a moment, as that weighs heavily on you, imagine just a moment that Jesus has done something so amazing that we no longer have a fear over that. And the grip of death has lost its power over us, and its sting is no more. And the same way that Jesus walked into, or excuse me, was carried into the grave and walked out, so also you and I have a promise that in Jesus Christ, just like we're not afraid of drowning in the water, so also we are not afraid of death. I have a word for you. Um, I'm not a fear mongerer, and I, I, I despise those that are because if I read the Bible right, perfect love that God gives us in Jesus casts out fear, and God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of sound mind. And there's a lot of fear I see kind of going around in our own particular culture, but let me just throw something at you. Because of Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as a death threat for a Christian. There is no such thing as a death threat for a Christian. You know why? Because death is no longer a threat. Death has been put to death. And yes, we'll mourn it, but we'll never mourn it as those who have no hope. And we'll know that Jesus has the final word over it, and we are now under grace. 
So what does this mean? We're participating. We're not, it's, not just, it's not just a symbol in Jesus' death. It's an active participation. You can't stay under the water and live. You are f- going face to face with death, and yet you are fearlessly coming out in baptism. So also is the good news that Jesus has given us. We face something in front of us that is awful, that can destroy us, and death is looming over. It's for you, it's for me, and it's a phone call away for all of us. It is one crazy person away. It's one psychotic person away. It's a terrorist away. It's a bad driver away. It's a drunk driver away. It's, it's a diagnosis of cancer or lung disease away. It is that close. It is hanging over you and me, and yet we say boldly because of Jesus Christ, this is no threat. Oh, you may get a few punches in. You may stop me from breathing. You may put this body in the ground, but friend, I won't stay there. Oh, miraculous promise of Jesus Christ that it's good news. We don't stay there. And baptism is our participation in that death, and we drown in the waters of baptism that sinful person so that a new person comes out. Well, baptism comes with a few things, and those are the things I kind of want to point out to you and maybe make a case for why we do the things that we do. So we baptize people who are believers, and, and for example, we don't baptize infants or, or children. And, and the reason I hope I can show to you, uh, the reason I hope I can kind of make clear to you why we do this and why, hopefully, we see that baptism is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. And I want to leave it with you so that for those of you who may have been baptized, you might leave hearing good news. Um, but for those of you who maybe haven't been baptized, maybe I want you to think about this good news that God wants to demonstrate for you. So we have, for example, I just want to put this out there. We are part of two different networks with different churches that we love very dearly, and they do something different. They kind of see the scripture different in this area, and they baptize infants or children, kind of like the Jews, uh, the nation of Israel, would circumcise on the eighth day. There's kind of a, a covenant membership that's symbolized in baptism. And I want to point out to you where that comes from. I want to show you where we get our idea of, of, of baptism. And I want to show you kind of the places in which this happens. So, so throughout the scripture, the Bible teaches a lot of different things come along with baptism. Namely, as we saw, as I read to you before I baptized these three people, repentance, confession of sin. Now, this, that's a, a very important Picture there's a repentance and confession of sinfulness in, in baptism. It goes over and over and over again. The people believe, they confess sin, they repent, they turn to God, they turn to what God has done for us in Jesus. Now here's the thing. I've tried this with, I have a four and a six-year-old, and I tried early on. I have tried as hard as I could to get my, my, my little girls to repent and confess sin. I've really tried really hard, and it's really hard. It's really difficult. It's hard to get a week-old baby to confess sin and to repent. So if that is the case, then there's a picture of the gospel that Jesus willingly and happily receives our confession. He, he doesn't want you to hide your sin. He wants to let it out in the open so he can receive it and make something beautiful out of it. And, and that's a really difficult thing to do with little children, although I've tried. There's a second thing that, that comes along with, with this picture of baptism. and The word babto or baptisma, the, the words describing baptism literally mean to dip. Babto means to dip. Like you, would, like you would dip, I don't know, something into, into a, a bucket of ranch, right? You wouldn't do so just like, no, you go right after it. It goes under, and that's, that's the picture of dipping, right? There's a word for, for showering, and, and that isn't the word that's ever used to describe baptism. And there isn't ever a case in which a young person or a child is said to, in the Bible, have been baptized. And that's because, just practic- practically speaking, it's hard, it's difficult to not get arrested when you hold, like, a baby underwater right? Even CPS thinks that's a bad idea. And so there's these pictures of baptism that the Bible paints for us that that we're united with Christ by faith in him and repentance 
of our sin and also being dunked in water because, again, he was buried. I don't know if you caught that. Jesus was buried. Jesus didn't just like dip his toe or get sprinkled with death. He was immersed, covered by it for three days. The people went there three days later and they were going to put some stuff on his dead body because they were afraid it was going to start smelling bad. He didn't just like dabble with death. He went right into it. And those are pictures that we see. But sometimes there's a household that's baptized together or believes together. And I want, you to show, I want to show you how those play out. There's five times in, in the book of Acts and another place that we kind of see it mentioned in, in 1 Corinthians. And I'll show you those. And it kind of creates an argument from silence. So Acts chapter 18 is, this is the archetype of what happens. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, that says that he did what? Believed. He believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So over and over and over again, I can show you multiple examples of this in Scripture. So whenever a household comes to the Lord, it says that they believed. It doesn't mention how old they were, but it, it, almost every time you see this, there's a picture of baptism marked with belief. That, why is that? Why, why is that? Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the picture the Bible gives us. Now, most people wouldn't disagree with this. They would say, yes, if someone who doesn't know Jesus hears the good news of Jesus, is transformed by this good news that God is for them and not against them, then they will happily wear that symbol and an unbelieving person would come in and believe. But the argument from silent kind of comes after that, right? So we saw there the archetype is that when you believe, you receive something, and then their household, assuming it says they believed and received it as well. But there's other examples in which it's, it's a little muddier. And some people will take this to say, okay, we baptize babies. No, even though the word baby or infant you won't see. So for example, one of my favorite um, was Lydia. Remember, she was a, she was a big deal. And she, was, she became like a, she was bivocational. She was like, she was a real big deal. She sold purple. She was literally a fashionista. So, and one who heard this good news when Paul went to Acts in chapter, excuse me, when Paul went, um, went to Philippi in Acts chapter 16, verse 14 says that, that one of the people that heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. So she had two houses. She was a big deal. And she, a seller of purple of goods, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. The Lord opened her heart, and after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And then she prevailed upon us. She immediately was given the gift of hospitality. Boom. Starts to love Paul and all, the, all of his companions. So did you catch that? Like she was baptized all her household, which could have been infants, could have been babies. It, could, it, does, it does not say. It does not say the names or ages of the people. We don't know if she's married. We don't know if she has a husband. We don't know if she has a family at all. It just says her household. It may have been her servants. It may have, we don't know. Employees. But it does tell us that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And what did Paul love to say? The good news that Jesus is king. So again, it's, it's, it's difficult, but, but you could here say, well, potentially there were people who were babies, infants, who were baptized along with this household. But, but you'd have to take a big jump because you'd have to assume that they also, in some powerful way, had their heart opened to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So at the very least, they'd have to be old enough to be opened, their heart open, their mind open, and to hear what Paul said. That's possible. You could jump, and we have guys I love, women I love, people I love, the churches I love, they do this. They go, this is what this means. This, this is what's going on here. 1 Corinthians 1. 
What is it that Paul loved to tell people? He said, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Why? Because in Corinth, they were arguing about who they got baptized by. Some of them were baptized by Apollo, uh, some by, uh, by Paul, and they were bragging about who baptized them, right? Because, I mean, I got baptized by this guy. I got baptized by this guy, right? And, and they were bragging about it. And Paul comes along, and it's not a really nice letter, but it's a loving letter. And he says, look, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Why? Because Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 commands us to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He says, I did also, he says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. So here we get, there's, there's kind of a, a thing there like, I, possibly in this household there were infants and children. It does not say. It does not say the age or names or identity of any of these people. It just says household. And we're left with an argument from silence, but not really. Because the next verse, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to do what? Preach the gospel. Again, remember what I told you. I, who, I do not want you to have a well-thought-out view of baptism, even though I think that's important. I want you to have a well-thought-out understanding of the gospel. And Paul even says that. Look, I want, I want you to hear the gospel. And not even that they're words of eloquent wisdom, but instead, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, I want it to be the power of the cross declared for you. So there you have it. There's this picture, and this is the tendency of the Scripture. And here's what I want to share with you. This is what I want to kind of close with. Um, we, we could choose to do this, but here's the problem. In good conscience, if you came to me and you were like, hey, I want you to baptize my child, here's the problem. I would want to say, well, do, do they know this amazing good news? I really, I re- it's not really that I want to baptize your baby. It's really that I want to preach the gospel to your children. I want your whole household to believe. And the picture of union with Christ, we're united with him in his death and resurrected with him in his resurrection. It's kind of like, and I would argue this for you, and I'll just kind of close in this thought and, and pray that we do this well. With no, again, if you were baptized as a baby, I love you. It's cool. There's no, good for you, right? You know what I'm going to tell you? I hope you believe the gospel. Believe that the good news of Jesus can save you, redeem you, and give you new life, right? You baptize one of your babies. Good for you. Good job. I hope you pass on your faith to the point that your whole, your whole household has their heart open like Lydia and they believe. Right? There's no condemnation for this. But there's a picture here that I, I want to kind of throw out to you. So I want you to think right now, um, I think often in sports analogies, what's your favorite team? Like what's your favorite uh, sports team? Um, and, and just get that in your mind, right? So, so for some of you, you know, who's who like Green Bay Packer fans? Raise your hand. There's a few of you. Good luck in life. Um, I mean, I love you like, like Jesus loves you, but it's hard, right? So, what about is it Minnesota Vikings fans? More? And not really. Like, uh, I don't really want to admit that. Uh, I wasn't really prideful, right? So, let's just picture your team, okay? Um, whatever you like. If you don't like sports, that's good. This analogy will still be put, uh, you'll be able to see this for you, all right? Um, so, so, when I have a baby, the tendency is to take that team I like and that loyalty that I have, and I give, I give that child typically like a onesie or something. So, you Green Bay Packers fans, you have like 14 of them. Right? You have like 14 onesies that say Green Bay and Packers for your kids, right? Because you hope more than anything one day they're going to grow up to be a Green Bay Packers fan, right? And if you're a Minnesota Vikings fan, that's the most disgusting thing you can think of. A baby with a Packers onesie, ah, it's awful. But if you're a Vikings fan, you'd probably like buy a little jersey. Maybe, maybe I don't know, I can't, I can't name more than two people on the Vikings at the moment. That, so I can't really give you an example of what jersey you might buy them. But like you'd buy them a jersey and say, man, I hope you one day will be a Vikings fan. So the, the baby's wearing the paraphernalia that identifies them with a the team. 
But let's be honest, is, is that a symbol of their fanhood or their parents? This little baby, right? Is that a symbol of their love for your team or is it a symbol of the parents' love for the team? You see, for us, we, we love and we want to give the symbols of love of Jesus Christ, the symbols of the gospel to children. We want to. We want them to know that we were going to train them up in the way that they ought to grow up and so that one day they won't depart from this good news that God has given us. We, we want to do that. We want to give them that symbol. But the difference is we want to wait till they can fit it. Because you, especially for some of you radical fans, and some of you know this, maybe, maybe you don't like sports, but maybe a good example is like John Deere. You ever seen like a baby dressed up in John Deere paraphernalia? You've seen it like Harley Davidson stuff? Like does the baby really like Harley Davidson or do their parents, right? Do they really like John Deere or is it the parents? You've seen this? You know what I'm talking about? You want that loyalty to come. You want to pass on your loyalty and love. But isn't it a much more fulfilling and isn't it much more encouraging thing when your child having grown, goes and puts on that Green Bay Packer jersey. You don't just want that they'll, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe wear, wear the thing you give them, but isn't it a much more beautiful thing when side by side you watch the Green Bay Packers win and your child, having grown and loved the Packers, goes, yes, me too. The symbol's the same. But oh, that the symbol, like in the Bible, would correspond with the faith that God has given us. Oh, that the symbols of the gospel would correspond with a life changed by the gospel. Oh, that the symbols of Jesus Christ and, and his death and his resurrection would be worn by faith with conviction for our children. Here's the problem with that analogy, and I'll leave you with this. You see, it's not really quite the same. It's not just that we wear a Jesus jersey when we're a baby or maybe grow into a Jesus jersey and be a fan of Jesus. Did you catch this? You see, if the analogy was really right, it wouldn't be that your son or daughter would grow, I guess it had to be a son, son or daughter would grow up to be a Green Bay Packer fan. If I read the union of Christ into this, into that analogy, the actual analogy would be that your son or daughter would grow up to be a real Green Bay Packer. So it's not like we're fans of Jesus. Did you catch that? We are with him. We are buried with him. Oh, that we would not simply be fans of what Jesus has done, but that we would be united with him, that we would be on mission with him, that we would be changed by him and having our identity found in him. So here's the thing. We love people who baptize their children. Great. I just can't defend it very well. This is our conviction. We think that leaves us in a place. What we find here in Romans 6 is a picture of the gospel. And you and I, I hope, we want to be the clearest, most unmistakable picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us in the midst of a world that is dying without him. And we want to have the clearest, most bold testimony. And I hope, if this isn't clear, I hope you walk up to Greta or to Austin or to Courtney today and you ask him, why'd you do that? Why did you do that thing? And I hope that they get to tell you, I was buried in that water because I've been buried with Christ. And I came out of that water because one day I'm going to come out of the grave. And friend, you can too. And I'm not afraid of Jonathan drowning me in the water any more than I'm afraid of the enemy holding me down in the grave because Jesus has defeated the grave and defeated the enemy. And now I have the victory that comes from knowing that in Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would have a beautiful and amazing and compelling picture of the gospel in our lives. So here's what I would say to you. I pray that you would be persuaded by these things, that you would see the gospel and want to live it out. 
Many of you are like, you're holding back. You, you want to get baptized, but you're afraid. Some of you, I've said this with so many of you, like, you know, I want to get baptized, but I'm afraid I'm going to be a hypocrite. Yeah, you should, because you will. Baptism isn't a picture of what you have done. Rest easy. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be sinless. Baptism is a picture that Jesus did that for you. You don't have to get your act together. Jesus loved you while you were yet a sinner. And baptism is a picture that we need his help, and he willingly and graciously gives it to us eternally. So for some of you, you're kind of on the fence. You don't know if you should do this. Man, do it. Do it boldly, knowing that Christ has done something, not just to to comply with some practice, but to demonstrate to the world, your family, and the people you love and care about that your faith and obedience is submitted to the glory that Jesus deserves. The covenant that God has given us is a new covenant, and it's a covenant that's in his blood, and he will not take it back. You, friend, are not under an old covenant. Did you get that in verse 14? You are under a new covenant that is not the law, but it is, a, it is marked by grace. Please be washed by the blood of Jesus. Are your sins forgiven? Have you died with Christ and risen by faith in a new life? Does the Spirit live in you? then let's celebrate this with those that have been baptized and with those that one day will, that Jesus saves and the death is defeated. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are with us, active and among us, that you have not abandoned us. And above all else, in this season of Advent, as we celebrate the coming of Jesus, we know that you have not forsaken us, but you have desired greatly to be with us, so much that you would rather, rather than watching us die in peril and in sin, you were willing to watch your son die in our place. We thank you for this. We thank you that you bring life to us through this. So if there's some of us in this room that we have doubts about this, this is highly questionable. This seems suspicious. God, would you give us the boldness to ask the right questions and, and to realize there's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no wrong question, but would we seek you earnestly? Would the symbols that mark our life be the symbols of goodness that you've shown us in Jesus Christ, whether it's baptism, kindness, Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, these things that we live out every day? Would they be corresponding to a new covenant that you've shown us in Jesus Christ? God, help us to not be loyal to a particular practice or tradition, but instead let us hear, receive, and understand and be changed by the good news of Jesus, such that all of our practices, all of our traditions correspond with the life-changing good news of your Son. God, let us not quarrel or, or fight over tradition or practice. Let us fight and die for the good news that you have died for us. You've redeemed us, you've adopted us, you've chosen us, you've invited us to stand with you, to be heirs with you forever. So for those of us who need to hear this and need to be changed by this, begin to open our minds to the possibility that it's true. For those of us that have heard, us, heard this, God, let us celebrate and remember how good a thing you've done for us. Let us remember our baptism. Let us remember the baptism of those around us and realize that we are together in Christ we will never be separated from him. This is true for us, and this is good news for us. A good king and a new kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen.